Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Today, I'm really excited, actually, to be joined by Alison Jones. Alison, you're so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Oh, thank you for having me, Susan. It's really nice to be here. It's great. And I did a writing course with Alison last year. I did several of them, actually. But the podcast was one of the byproducts of doing that writing course with Alison. So thank you, Alison, for, I guess, being the catalyst, probably, for starting Life Beyond the Numbers. And it's brilliant now to have you on as a guest. Oh, that feels like a nice kind of completion, doesn't it? Yeah, that's I'm really, really pleased because it was such a great concept for a podcast. I'm, I'm just delighted that you went ahead and implemented it. Great. Thank you. So we're going to talk about thinking first. And I hear this all the time. People saying to me, well, I don't have time to think about that. Or we have no headspace at the moment to even think about thinking about that. <laughs> and that seems to be, you know, <laughs> what people say in workplaces at the moment. And I suppose, Alison, what does thinking look like for you? And that's the problem, isn't it? So often thinking looks like doing absolutely nothing productive. It looks like staring out of the window. It looks like doodling. It looks like going for a walk. Uh, this is invisible work, you know, and where you have management by walking around, it isn't really encouraged. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Thinking is, I think, something that most of us really struggle to fit into our day. And it feels artificial, I think, as well, you know, so if, if we think, oh, I'm, what I'm going to do now is spend 15 minutes thinking. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's like mindfulness. I'd very quickly be jotting down a shopping list or thinking, oh, I really should go, you know, to the dishwasher or, you know, because there's a billion little distractions that immediately come in. So the quality, the time, the the habit of mind of just thinking deeply about stuff, I think is it's pretty hard to do spontaneously. Yeah, and... You're right. We're we're constantly thinking. I mean, there's you know thoughts going off right now. <laughs> we're telling ourselves stories all the time. Yeah, we're remembering fragments of '80s songs all the time. <laughs> oh, maybe that's just me. But <laughs> but yeah, proper thinking. I'm not sure that qualifies. So, what does deep thinking look like then? What is deep thinking or well, deep thought? For me, deep thinking actually looks very much like writing because I found and I'm sure that I, I'm just not highly evolved as, as some people but I have found that for me having a pencil in my hand having a piece of paper writing down so that I can follow that thought through bring myself back to it see new connections underline stuff it gives it 
a tangible form and and then I can see it and I can work with it and it's useful to me but it's it's a kind of um virtuous circle because yes the writing helps externalize the thinking so that you can you know use it but actually the act of writing catalyzes the thinking so that it can go deeper and make new associations and and extend and, and enrich in, in a way that I, I don't manage to do and it's just in my head hmm. oh, there's, a, there's a lot in there and I went to the first thing I often, when I thought about writing first, is a lot of us are afraid of writing. Yeah. We, we think writing is something that is only in books. And yet we, we write emails, we write shopping lists, we write all the time, but day-to-day -day writing feels different than what you were talking about there, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I, th I think it it's related <laughs> because actually what you're doing when you're writing a shopping list is you are creating a, a sort of a hard drive for your brain aren't you you're, you're, you're outsourcing you're, you're, you're trapping it so that you don't have to, so that your brain can do something else and, and that's really all we're talking about but but just for a different purpose and I think writing maybe it's a bit you know like singing is that people go oh I can't sing of course you can bloody sing you know and anybody can sing in the shower but we've made it performative and we've made it that you can be good at singing or not good at singing. And I think writing, I think is a little bit like that now. You think, oh, I'm not a writer, you know, I can't write. And I, you know, my, my grammar's not very good and I just can't put my thoughts. But actually, if, if you just take performative aspects out, if you think I'm not writing for anybody else, I'm just creating a space for my brain to work better in, then that takes all that pressure off. And it doesn't matter what the writing looks like. It doesn't matter how awful your handwriting is or how badly you misuse apostrophes it really doesn't matter because it's just purely a, a function for to help you think and I, I don't think many people ever really use writing in that way and I think that's a shame absolutely and so are you advocating for pen and paper or the keyboard and a word document Alison what works best do you think do you know if you if you're not going to do anything if you don't use a keyboard then use a keyboard but honestly I think pen and paper is more freeing and there's a number of reasons for that there is a neurological basis for that in that that kind of connection with the hand brain connection there's a there's a thingness and a permanence about what you create and there's also a provisionality about it. it's scruffy and that is really helpful because when you're writing on a on a screen and it's correcting your grammar as you go it's very hard to to be completely kind of divorced it, it looks finished it looks like something you could press send on and you don't want it to look like that but the other reason is that actually I don't know about you Susan I mean, maybe you can talk about how you know how you do that as well but often I I use non-text elements so I will loop things together with arrows or I will start to draw a diagram or I will box something off and put a question mark beside it and that ability to to annotate and to move fluidly between a kind of graphical and, and a lexical mindset I haven't found the program that allows me to do that in such a frictionless way as a pencil on paper yet there isn't is there I mean <laughs> that's I love what you say about words using words because it is trying to correct you as you go and then you get distracted so easily and then you reread a sentence and go oh that sounds awful yeah and the pen and paper you know the next thing people will say well how do I start with a, 
blank piece of paper? What do I write first? Or my writing is illegible. I mean, we have so many excuses. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the antidote to that? Well, it's doing it, of course. You know, you do it by doing it. But I'd say that there's there's two ways to try. If you are sitting there going, all right, I'll give it a go, Alison. You know, what do I do? I'd suggest two different approaches and just try and both see which one works best for you. And, and the first is free. And you know that Susan's smiling and nodding. <laughs> I'm a big fan of free writing. But it, it does take a bit of... Um, courage to start I think and a bit of uh, stickability to keep going for the first wee while so literally set a timer for six minutes I'll you can come on to that if you want <laughs> trust me six minutes and give yourself a, a prompt so take something that's going around and around in your head or, or something you know like oh you know I can't seem to find the answer to this and I think the reason is or whatever and then just start writing and and the only rules are that you just have to keep writing so you're what you're trying to do is write at the speed of thought while at the same time slowing your thought down to the speed at which you can get the thoughts on the paper and there's that sweet spot there where you're thinking really fast and you're making associations and there's no friction in it but it isn't spinning around out of control in loops in your head the first two minutes maybe even three minutes will feel completely pointless and you'll be writing things like I don't want to write this is stupid why did I ever listen to that stupid woman on that podcast but just <laughs> keep writing what's in your head and suddenly and you can see it when I do it in the room with people that they start sort of writing quite so and then you can suddenly almost see them go and, and they've caught something and then they're away so it does take a while to pump out the sludge and, and get yourself going. It's also a brilliant technique. If you have to write for something, you have to write a, a blog post or even a book or something and, and you, you're stuck, you've got writer's block. That's a, just a great way for getting things moving. So that's my first suggestion. And the second one is that you start by turning your paper landscape rather than portrait, um, portrait put whatever it is you're thinking about in the middle and just start mind mapping because that I think is more how we think it's much more organic it doesn't force you into any kind of linearity and especially if you're not confident writing for long periods of time and your handwriting is illegible then all you have to do really is, is capture thoughts and then see how they fit together and see what other thoughts they generate and I think that is the best way I know to start any kind of new thinking or new project. Brilliant and um I mean, I want to go back to the timer and I want to go to the visual, but yeah. first just the free writing. Yeah. I think that has like probably changed so much for me personally, setting a timer. Yes. And it's almost like a competition for six minutes. That's all I have, six minutes. I've just got to get something down. Yeah. And that is my go-to now. You'll be glad to hear. Oh, then <laughs> for, my work here is done. Yeah for everything especially when I'm in a hurry or I really just need to stop procrastinating and get going it's like six minutes and and then reading back over it and maybe it was nonsense but actually it's cleared my head yes and now I can think and there's always something in there isn't there there's is. always no there always is some insight or connection or idea that you hadn't had before I, I have never got to the end of six minutes with with nothing no it, it is really really powerful and it's that reminds me of that quote you don't need time you need a deadline and that's what I feel about that it's <laughs> great I didn't know you just that, need yeah. six minutes to write something it and it, it's odd isn't it it's one of those things about your brain that if, if you give it 
I suppose it's Parkinson's law, isn't it? Work expands to fill the time available for its, for its completion. And si I mean, six minutes is, is kind of no time. Just to go on to the six minutes and why. I used to do five minutes. And then I spoke to Jilly Bolton, who's the author of Reflective Practice, which is the kind of standard textbook for reflective practice in, in, in education, but particularly in clinical practice. So she works a lot with professionals, getting them journaling and writing about experience. And we can come on to the value of that. But she was saying that six minutes is short enough that you can do it. I mean, even 10 minutes feels like a bit of a chunk of your day, but six minutes is basically five minutes, isn't it? You know, and anybody can do that. But because it takes two to three minutes to kind of warm up into your free writing, by just adding one minute on the end, you're really increasing the time that you actually spend in that zone for, for almost no cost. And she's so right. <laughs> so that's my new, it's six minutes. Um, and by the end of six minutes, your hand is pretty much ready to fall off. So you, you don't really want to be going much more than that. But it, there's something about knowing the time is going, knowing that you have permission to stop then and knowing that you can keep going full pace sprint, you know, just for that short period of time. It's very freeing. It really is. And knowing that no one is reading it. Yes. And then you can say all the stuff that you, you wouldn't even say to your therapist. It's just you and the paper. And sometimes, actually, that's all you need. You just need to be able to look at what it is you're really feeling about something and recognize it and go, OK, that's why I'm feeling like this. It's because, you know, and there's, there's often a, a reason, a violation of a need or a value that's, that's really triggering you with somebody, for example, and even just seeing it can help you process it and, and kind of come out the other side more effectively. Yeah, I'm just thinking about if you're at work and you get an email in that just, you know, you explode yeah. and you're not really sure why. I mean, that is a really good way of sitting down and thinking it Absolutely. out on paper. And saying at the start of that as well, all the things that you would really like to say to that person is very cathartic. You do need to be quite, you know, good at, destroying the paper afterwards yeah. but it's better than replying to the email oh so much better yeah. <laughs> and actually you know people say oh I'm going to start this this right brain course with you. I'm going to get myself a new notebook and I'm like well you can <laughs> but please don't do the free writing in the notebook because it's too beautiful and you're going to want to censor yourself and keep it neat and, be, and only say nice things and you need the scruffiest bit of paper that you can lay your hands on really to be able to get all the all the crap out of your brain and by all means then read it back over pull out the actionable stuff pull out the insights and put them into your notebook but don't whatever you do do your free writing in a lovely notebook it's it's just not what it's for <laughs> and it's not a measure of your quality of writing either. So, so not. No, <laughs> you, you want one of those big scruffy A4 pads that you can just, you know, scream through at a rate of knots. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the visual side, Alison, because that's, yes. you know, I definitely has a story in my head that I can't draw. <laughs> and yeah, I know. Performative. Yeah. And I resisted models and Venn diagrams. And even though when I worked as an accountant, I would have used graphs to help people understand the numbers. However, writing and looking at things visually was just something I thought, no, 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 they don't go together. But like you said, just putting something in the middle of a page and drawing or putting boxes down, whatever, is so freeing as well. Yeah. I mean, I have to admit, my drawing is, is mostly non-linear arrangement of text rather than actual drawing <laughs> but that in itself is hugely helpful because when you and post-its are great for this as well because you can move things around but when you have dumped out and unpacked all the components of something 
being able to play with them on the page and see how they fit together. I'm using my hands hugely here, which is a complete waste of time on a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> you, you can sort of see, well, that's interesting because it sort of starts here and then there's a loop here and, and being able to then capture that and create some sort of visual out of it, which of course, even the most artistically challenged of us can do with PowerPoint or whatever these days. That's a helps, again, it's that kind of feedback loop. It helps you think differently about what you're thinking about and gives you new insights into the relationships between the pieces. But also once you've come out the other side and got it, so you've, you've gone through that process of writing for clarity, then you move into using writing for communication and you can show somebody that diagram and they will get what you're talking about about a billion times faster than if they were you were presenting them with a paragraph of text because that's how we work as humans. So there's both sides. There's that kind of clarity for yourself, but also that communicative ability for other people. I think you talked about your managing director somewhere along the line yeah. that um, said he got to 50 before he realised the power of visual or that you can solve something faster. Yeah, he, he actually said, um, he said, I, I got to 50 before I realised that if you drew a problem, you could solve it in half the time. It's, I've never forgotten it. Such a powerful, and that was kind of almost coaching on the fly for me. So it was great, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Well, I suppose it's back to a picture paints a thousand words. It really does. But you do not have to be Picasso. I remember talking to Kate Rayworth. She's the, the woman who wrote Donut Economics fabulous economist and, and donut economics has, has has really come to be the, the exemplar of that sense of um, not anti-growth but just that sense that actually it's not about growth at all costs it's about how we as a society and, and, and as organizations live within planetary boundaries so that people have enough but not you know too much and donut the the idea of donut economics literally came from they were talking in a meeting about this balance and she literally drew a donut on a napkin and thought that's pleasing that captures it <laughs> and then when she was trying to talk to somebody else about it she could see them glazing over she pulled out the napkin and showed them and they went oh I see and it was that she sort of went oh my goodness that's simple it does not have to be as I say Picasso it just has to capture sort of the essence of, of the relationship between the elements you're talking about that's another aspect isn't it simplicity yes because we're living a very complex world where we like to produce complex reports or complex emails or complex diagrams when actually stripping it away it's so the thinking powerful. as well mm. that gets you there isn't it it's quite hard to say something simply if you don't think about it Yes, I think obfuscation is uh, is a real retreat for people who haven't done the thinking, actually, and don't really quite know what they're saying. So they'll use lots of long words and hope you don't notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then everybody's eyes glaze over and <laughs> you've lost them. Oh, but you got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I wonder if before going into meetings, if everybody sat for five, their six minutes and thought about what do I really want to get out of this meeting today? that would be quite a powerful reflective exercise as well. Well, interestingly, at Amazon, they, they have their kind of six page memo. So every meeting, every new product, instead of going in and presenting it with PowerPoint and everybody dies in their chair, you have to create a six page memo setting it out, creating a narrative really around what it is you're trying to do. And I'm dead sure that these start off as a brain dump, but what they have to create, it, it again is move through that clarity process, 
present it in, in writing. And then for the first 15 minutes, everybody just sits and reads it. And it means that everybody's on the same page, <laughs> literally. And also that the person presenting it has had to do that work and therefore has had to think much more robustly, can't hide behind a whizzy PowerPoint slide or long words. It's, it's all there. And I think that's a really interesting way of using writing, firstly, to help clarify the, the thing that's being uh, presented, but also the reading of it, uh, then bringing everybody up to speed on it in a really substantial way, rather than the kind of headline on a PowerPoint. And I suppose we could say, well, Amazon is this huge company that can afford to let people sit around and think. <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, this thing, they don't let their delivery drivers sit around and think. <laughs> don't even let them pee. But, but that sense of forcing people to think before they actually, you know, one person creating a six page memo. Think about the wasted time in meetings for your most high level execs. I think that's another thing that I love about writing. It's such a lightweight affordable accessible tool and it slightly amazes me that it's not more used in businesses because of that I think maybe it's slightly hiding in plain sight maybe maybe it is and I also think they're just about empathy and actually thinking about the the end user and whether that's somebody getting a finance report that I mean, people are so scared of numbers or you're designing a product for somebody. You kind of have to go into what that other person is thinking and feeling. And writing is the way to do that, too. Yes, it's such a great route to empathy. And it, it forces you to think, well, actually, how do I capture somebody's attention here? What's the problem they're facing? What's the language they're using? How do I keep them reading? So again, you know, they, they, if they are doing a new product, they start with the sales page. What's the benefit? And, and then they build to that. And again, there's lots about Amazon that I'm not so wild about, but there's huge amounts that we, I think we can learn from, from those approaches. And actually, they are really accessible. They are not high tech approaches. No, again, it's back to simplicity, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And innovation, creativity, I mean, they're the words that we hear in workplaces, you know, and the, uh, the image that was always conjured up for me is people building things or drawing the Picasso. <laughs> and, and actually, it's not. It's back to starting with the basics, the simplicity, again, of writing and making connections i think that that's obviously one of the most foundational skills in creativity is being able to see how something relates to something else that it hasn't been related to before so taking something out of one domain and applying it in another and that's a really powerful uh, way of creating creativity and I, I think i can't remember the book i read that was saying that this is the single foundational skill of creativity is the ability to connect apparently dissimilar objects and, and, and see something interesting in, in when you bring them together. Uh, and you'll know that one of the exercises that we do in Right Brain is about forced metaphors, uh, which always feels like magic. You see somebody looking at you thinking that you're, you're completely insane when you ask them to see, you know, how, how is their job like this acorn or something? And, and then when, when you're forced into that okay, well, I have to find some sort of similarity here. Of course you do. And it makes you start from a completely different place, which is another kind of foundational skill of creativity is kind of getting out of the rut that you're in. So yeah, that sense of making connections, which your brain does all the time and writing enables you to, to capture that is really, really key. And of course our workplaces are full of metaphors anyway. Oh. <laughs> you, I mean, you literally can't talk for more than a minute without using a metaphor. You just, yeah. the, the thing is we don't see them anymore. 
No, we don't. I mean, even seeing, that's a metaphor, you know, because you're not literally seeing anything, but it's, it's a visual metaphor. And it's possible to get trapped in your metaphors. There's another one. <laughs> because you haven't noticed them and you don't realise how they are constraining your thinking. Very powerful. And so that's something to also look for as you write, as you Absolutely. do any reflection yourself. What are you saying that's a metaphor? And you can do a little bit of kind of linguistic analysis on your own free writing. You know, what's coming up here? If you're if you're using war metaphor in this, you know, outpouring of, of what your frustration is at work, what would it be like if you changed that metaphor in use and thought about it more as a collaborative team sport? You can play with metaphors. You can try them on for size and they will change how you see things but also the solutions that you come up with there's a fascinating experiment that was run in a, a US university recently where they they wrote about crime they, they created a sort of piece about crime and, and the idea was they were, they were using these subjects and they were going to ask them for their solutions about how this could be treated and they used the metaphor of, of an attacker in one and almost army besieging the, the town and in the other they used a metaphor of a virus something that was infecting the town and the solutions that both groups came up with were informed by those metaphors, even though when they were talking about it afterwards, they had no idea that that was informing their thinking. It's, it's really interesting that it can shape our response to situations, emotional, but also the way we behave in response to situations. And often we have no idea that that is, in fact, what's driving us. Fascinating, because I know... And I, I go to Toastmasters and we do impromptu speaking. And I think impromptu speaking is a bit like free writing because you don't know what's going to come out when you get asked Except this question. Much more terrifying because there's people listening. Yeah. <laughs> or invigorating. Recently, I got asked to pretend to be Boris Johnson after Matt Hancock had been caught out. And it was fascinating how you take on that personality and what you, comes out of your mouth is so different than if you had just been asked, well, what would Susan do in this situation? Yeah. And yeah, it's amazing. So to be able to capture that writing as well, like even take on somebody else's personality, what would Donald Trump do to solve this crisis? And actually that you've touched on another really important point. I mean, I frankly wouldn't recommend either of Boris or, or Donald for this, but, <laughs> you know, self-coaching. So coaching is, is a hugely valuable resource. And I'm not at all saying that this replaces it, but actually, you know, your coach isn't always on hand 24 seven. But if you have a writing practice, you can use that to self-coach. So you can very much give yourself a prompt, like what would... Richard Branson doing this situation you know what would Jahinda Hadern do in this situation you know that you can just think about people whose modus operandus you really respect and shift yourself into that perspective and and write to that and, and that is self-coaching and it's incredibly powerful. Amazing and we've covered reflective practice a bit as well Alison and what is the value or the benefit to reflective practice and what exactly is it because we hear a lot about reflecting yeah so it's the cold kind of reflective cycle isn't it you do you reflect you learn you apply and you go on like that forever in an ideal world and of course most of us get stuck in doing <laughs> we just do and do and then we do the next thing and we never actually drop into the reflective practice thing i think what reflective practice can do for you or, or in, in the terms that we're talking about i guess that kind of space for a writing practice which allows you to reflect on the day it's 
it metabolizes stuff. That's, I think, a really helpful way of thinking about it. You've got so much stuff coming at you all day, every day. So much experience, so much kind of emotion embedded in that that you probably don't even recognize because you haven't got time. So writing helps you ground that and process it and understand and create a narrative around it. And our brains are wired to create stories. So that is in itself a really, really valuable thing. But thinking about it in reflective terms, thinking about what just happened, thinking about how something either went wrong or went right, you know, moving beyond the kind of yay or ah, or that kind of initial reaction to what's interesting about this is allows you to take the learning, to notice how it might be useful elsewhere, maybe even to coach someone in your team about this, because there's so much of what we do as leaders that is just tacit, that we don't even quite understand how we're doing, and therefore, how the hell are we going to, you know, tell anybody else to do it? So I think there are many, many benefits for you personally, for your organization, for you as a leader, taking some time to reflect, to process this stuff, and to draw out the things that need to be learned and taken forward from it. And while you're talking, I'm thinking about reading as well, mm. because leaders are always leaders are readers. The readers. You know, <laughs> and I'm obviously there's a benefit to reading as well. So if we enjoy reading, then why aren't we translating that into enjoying writing? It's a very good question. Yes. And I, you know, I am huge on reading. You know, I think there's so much of the world's wisdom, you know, that the people who you would give any amount of money to sit in a room with and, you know, that they've written a book, go read the book. <laughs> it's 10 quid in Waterstones, go read it. So, so yes, do read the books because there's so much great thinking in there. But again, perhaps it's the performative thing. You know, the book you read has been through three, five, six drafts. It's been copy edited. It's been typeset, proofread. We get the finished thing and we think, oh, I could never write like that. But you know what? They didn't write like that. <laughs> it's been through the editorial process. It's like looking at an airbrush supermodel and going, oh, my skin isn't that good. Neither's hers. <laughs> so I think it's really important to remember that. And a book is, is if you like, it's the kind of ultimate presentation of, of the thinking. And it goes through a lot of different stages to get there. But it starts as some crappy bit of A4 paper that somebody scribbled an idea on. And, and there's a continuum all the way along that. So don't be put off dabbling at the starting end just because you think it's not going to come out at, you know at the end of the process of course it's not you have to start Mm-mm-mm-mm. and Alison you host the a podcast called the extraordinary business book club so are there some I mean there's so many extraordinary business books out there but are there some that specifically look at how to have a better work life? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, loads, actually. And I'm going to name just one that comes to mind immediately, which is actually one publishing next week. So it's very much top of mind for me. <laughs> it's called The Art of Enough by Becky Hall. And I, I love this book so much. I mentioned Kate Rayworth's Donor Economics. And actually, that's one of the um, resources in, in her bibliography. It's one of, the things, one of the sort of theories she draws on. But she, she just says, you know, this is the challenge of our age, is that we are beset on the one hand by scarcity, by the sense of not being enough personally, of, of fear of, of not having enough. Obviously, so many people in the world genuinely living in scarcity and poverty and all the rest of it. So at the kind of 
individual, at the organizational, at the societal, global societal level, there's this scarcity on the one hand, and then there's excess on the other, where we're, we're overwhelmed, way too much to do, we're over-consuming, you know, we just don't know where to stop. And really actively trying to find a balance as an individual, as an organization, as a global society is, you know, if we get this wrong, <laughs> we're stuffed, not just as individually as, as happy functioning human beings, but as a planet, you know, it's an existential threat. And I, I love that sense that this principle is exactly the same for you as an individual, as for us as a society and, and thinking in those terms. So I, I would put that forward as a book that is just, uh, you know, everybody should read, honestly. Wow, brilliant. That's going on my my list. Yeah, it's beautifully written as well, which always helps. Yeah. And I know that you recommend to try and support local booksellers as opposed to <laughs> we were talking about earlier on. Yeah, as a publisher, obviously you've got to play nicely because they are the you know the biggest game in town, but they're not primarily booksellers they're not primarily you know caring about books so if you have a good independent bookstore near you or even a good chain bookstore frankly please support them because the high street bookseller I don't think you realize how valuable that is until it's gone and they have had such a tough pandemic but the ability to go into a bookstore to browse to talk to booksellers it's gold please please don't lose it no, it, it really is. And just to hold a book and... Oh, it's look it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I bit like the, the, the Norrister, is it Norrister room here in, in Oxford? Norrington. The Norrington, Norrington room. room here in Blackburn, oh, Oxford. I mean, it's like, it's you know, you could go there on your holidays. It's so yeah, incredible. You could go in and never come out. It's, <laughs> you could die happy. Yeah. <laughs> So Alison, Right Brained, it's one of your new courses. It's something that is beyond beneficial for people, I think, in businesses, in your own life, whatever it might be. So where is it at and how does somebody find out about it? Well, I'm hoping to launch it in October. I'm just, uh, you know, polishing the, the video stills and uh, <laughs> putting together the promo and, and making sure all the automations are working. I have got the wait list up now, so I can give you the link to that, uh, which is it's a lead pages thing. But yes, basically, if you put that on your show notes, it's not a very snappy URL, but I'll, I'll send you the link. Or people can just look at alisonjones.com and uh, there'll be a link to it there as well. And yeah, anytime start course, it's a sort of 28 day course, literally 15 minutes a day, because it this I found with habits, the, the smaller, the, the tinier they are, the easier they are to, to embed. And then you can have it stack, you know, and I, I go for my run and I tend to kind of take my topic for what I'm going to write about on my run to do it around a bit. And then I come back and write and, and that works really well for me. So yeah, so I've got a topic there, but yes, about 15 minutes, you know, there's a short video and then there's a six minute writing sprint and then there's a little bit of reflection and, and you're done. It's transformative. And you, you're also available to go and work with organisations. Absolutely. I run this as a workshop. Yeah. And when you're actually in the room with people doing this, it is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's really transformative. And getting people in a team used to doing this together, again, it's just building such a kind of lightweight, always available skill set that they can, you know, using writing to collaborate as well as to think individually is really, really powerful. Yeah, so I suppose the, the message is when you think you don't have time to think, think Sorry. again. Exactly. That's couldn't have put it better. <laughs> 
Alison, it's been a real pleasure having you on today. And I'll leave all the details as well as the podcast details in the show notes for anyone that would like to connect with you. Fantastic. Thank you, Susan. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.